uh, I'll tell you what I'm excited about this weekend. I hope that you are as well. And we're continuing to look at the parables. We're continuing to look at the things that Jesus taught. And as we do, um, one of the things we've looked at over the last few weeks is just rule and reign of God in our lives. And that is what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So we're diving into this. We're looking at this. And last week we looked at two parables on the same weekend. Those two parables were this. One was the hidden treasure that a guy went and sold everything that he could buy that field and have that treasure. And the other was this pearl of great price that a guy went and sold everything so he could have that pearl. And I had one thing, one statement for you that I started off with last week. And I said, if you don't pay attention to anything else, it's the only thing I want you to get. And that is this, that the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God, that rule, that, that reign that is in your heart, that God has in your heart, is the most important thing, the best thing that we could ever get. And then I asked a question. What are you willing to give up to get it? What are you willing to give up to have that rule and have that reign of God in your life? What are we willing to give up? What in our lives are we willing to give up? And today we're going to be shifting over to Luke chapter 14. And actually we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 for the next three weeks. And as we look at Luke chapter 14 today, this I believe is the teaching that Jesus is shifting our thinking about how to have that rule and that reign in our lives. Because that rule and that reign in our lives, there's one thing that stands in the way of God ruling over us. You know what it is? It's us. It's us. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 14, begins to shift the thinking from us to him. To him being the ruler, to him being the one who reigns. And the problem is, is that we have a tendency to get in the way. Now, what I was going to do today is I was going to go through all of Luke chapter 14. But then after I had eight pages of notes on just Luke chapter 14, 1 through 11, I said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and break this up over a couple of weeks. That way we don't have to stay here all day today. It's already been a long weekend, so we're going we're gonna to move our way through it. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to open up to Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 11 today. And as we do, what we are going to do is we're going to see how Jesus is trying to shift our focus from ourselves to him. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath. We'll pause right there. It's important to notice the day that this is taking place on. When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him very closely. Now as we look at that, here's the scene. Jesus is out preaching. He's out teaching He's out healing. He's out casting out demons. He's doing amazing things. And these Pharisees, they're sitting and they're watching him. And they're watching him closely because they want him to mess up. They want him to break one of their rules. Now the cool thing is, is that we know that Jesus is without sin. So he does not break any of God's rules. However, Pharisees had this weird tendency to make up their own rules. We fall in that same category. And so they were waiting for him to break one of their rules. Well, guess what happens? He does. He does, and this is really kind of a setup for him because what they're doing is they've, been in, they've invited him to a house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Really, the Pharisees were kind of, and I, I don't use this term too loosely, but I believe they were kind of Jesus' enemy. And as one of Jesus' enemies, what they wanted to do is they wanted to catch him. So they invited him over to the house. I'm not sure about you, but if you were invited to one of the houses of your enemies to eat, would you go? Jesus did. So Jesus goes to this house, and he does it, and he shows up for this meal. And I love Luke's sarcasm in these next two words in verse 2. 
It says, and behold, like there's some big surprise that the Pharisees hadn't set him up for something because it says there was a man before him who had dropsy. Basically saying there was a man who was sick. I don't know if you know anything about dropsy. Look it up on Google. That's what I had to do. But it's basically where you get excess water in your skin and your skin begins to hang and it's like nothing quite functions right and it builds up around your joints and it's very painful and very, very miserable. And so what we see happen here is Jesus sees a guy who is in need. Now one thing I believe the Pharisees knew about Jesus is that he had compassion. He wanted to take care of people. So just happened that they brought in a guy who was sick. Remember what day it is? It's the Sabbath. So we look at it being the Sabbath, and we look at this guy who is sick, and Jesus says, all right, guess what verse 3 is? Jesus responded to the lawyers, because he knew. They were already asking a question. And he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Their response? Silence. And he took the guy, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And then he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. I, I can't even imagine being there. They, they have set Jesus up for him to fail. He circumvents the failure. He creates a success in healing this guy and then turns to them and says, hey, which one of you that has something important like a ox or one of your kids that has fallen in a well would not on the Sabbath go and save them, not say, oh, I'll wait for you, I'll catch you tomorrow morning when the sun comes up. Which one of you would do that? And their response was silence. He saves a guy, he heals a guy, and then he turns and rebukes all of the Pharisees. Can you imagine how awkward that meal is going to be? Because right at that point in time, if that were me, I'd be like, all right, guys, I'll see you all later. I did my thing, you've been rebuked, bye. But he hangs out. He not only continues to hang out, but then he continues to use the situation to teach. And he begins to look around, and he sees even the seating chart of the area, how these guys are sitting and how they are fighting for position at the seats. And he says, you all are sinful, and you all are proud. And as he says that, he's saying, I want to teach you a little bit. So that awkward moment we just had with me healing that guy and you guys unable to answer the question, it's going to get more awkward. Because I'm going to teach you a little bit about where we should be sitting at. Um, You invited me. You've opened the door. Here we go. And then what he says here, he's like, you know what? You guys are supposed to be holy. Are you not? Don't you pride yourself on your holiness? Yet look at your selfishness amongst even in the seating at the table. So he starts teaching in verse 7. And this is what it says. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose their place of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Well, sorry, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited both will come to you and say, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I pause right there, and I think about the songs that we were just singing. 
And I, I laughed. I didn't talk to Jerome about the songs, but when he pulled up the 90s camp songs, I was like, hey, you know, humble thyself, and our God is an awesome God. Songs that I think most of you probably know, and you've known for a long time, but think about the words that you sang. Our God is an awesome God, reigning from heaven above. Well, where is he reigning at? In our hearts, in our lives, in this kingdom of God, and it causes us to humble ourselves because we realize who is reigning. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Jesus says, we have two, two options. God has a plan A and God has a plan B. Plan A, humility. Plan B, humiliation. Plan A comes from Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly? with your God, to walk humbly with your God. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing? Humbleness is our first option. Our second option is to be humiliated because we are not walking in humbleness. We can either humble ourselves and later be exalted or instead exalt ourselves and later be knocked down. Which option do you choose? Let me tell you, plan A from personal experience is a whole lot better than plan B. To walk in humility versus being humiliated, a whole lot different. So what Jesus does, he says, all right, guys, you know about a wedding. People 2,000 years ago are also going to know about a wedding. So let's teach a parable about a wedding. So he jumps into this wedding. He says, here you are. You're at a wedding. You have the groom's side. You have the bride's side. Everybody in the wedding knows the front row is reserved for who? The family. Those who are honored. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. All the aunts and uncles, like they can fit before the wedding party starts, you know, crowding them out. But that is the front row. And he says, imagine this for just a second with me. You walk into that wedding and the house is packed, except for the front row and except for the balcony. And you walk in, you say to yourself, I'm not going to sit in the balcony. So you walk up and you take a row of honor. You sit down where Nana is supposed to sit. And you don't sit where Nana's supposed to sit because you know that usher's coming down the aisle and say, hey, guess what? This is where Nana's supposed to sit. Nana's old, she has a walker, and she's not real happy that you're in her seat. So it's time for you to get up and move. And your first thought is, yeah, you're right, I'm selfish. Well, guess what happens? When that usher comes down, everybody that's sitting down behind you knows that you're not supposed to be there. And so when you stand up, you have to take the walk of shame down the center aisle, going the opposite way. And that walk of shame will be remembered every year on their anniversary because the video camera over in the camera caught it all, or in the corner caught it all. And everybody's remember, oh yeah, remember him? That guy who tried to take our seat? You want humility, you sit in the balcony. You want humiliation, you try and sit in Anna's seat and get put in the balcony. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, guess what? You have decided to force yourself into a place where you think you ought to be rather than understanding where you ought to be and living your life out that way. And the thing is, is that we don't just see it in a wedding. We see it in a church. We see it in business. We see it in sports. We see it all over because guess what? That is human nature, is it not? Is it not human nature to be the one that says, I can push my way, I can be a bully, I can be bullish, I can, I can force it. Even the most humble people or even the, the most introverted people will do it at a point when finally they have had enough and they will take their way. Because when the bully people start pushing themselves, other people say, I don't want conflict, so I'm just going to let them sit. 
selfish mentality. Jesus is trying to teach us it's actually the opposite. That pride is not what we should be running for. As a matter of fact, I believe that he's teaching us that pride is a root, if not the root, of evil, of all evil. And you go, wait a second. Can I possibly believe that? Can I possibly believe that pride can be the root of all evil? Because what is the one thing that we teach in every school, whether Christian or non-Christian, in every church, whether Christian or non-Christian, in every business place, whether Christian or non-Christian, what is the one thing we teach? Better yourself. Push yourself. Have better self-esteem. Have better self-help. Have better self-actualization. If you're not doing well well enough, look inside. Find that inner thing that's going to make you push, make you drive, make you go. Find yourself. Be happy with yourself. And we look at that and we say, well, that is the teaching that we have. And we see it in this infiltrated culture from the church all the way on out. But is it right? Because when I look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that's exactly what Satan did. He found himself. And when he found himself, he found himself in opposition to God. Because God is God. And Satan said, you know what? I think I can be God. I have found myself. And I'm going to push this pride. Well, guess what? When he pushed that pride, he fell. When he fell, he went and found Adam and he went and found Eve. And that is where the root of sin comes from. It's not biblical thinking at all. It's all about self. It's a life without reference to God. To say, I am it. There's a guy. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Abraham Maslow before? He's a psychologist who wrote a thing called the hierarchy of needs. And it looks similar to this. Actually, it it is this. And it's a a pyramid. And on the very bottom of that pyramid is your, your physiological needs. And those physiological needs are water, food, sleep, and high speed internet. Those are the things that really hit the the, the basics of life that you absolutely need to survive. But what you're going to do is you're going to push yourself up that next level and push yourself up to the next level until you hit the peak. And that peak is self-actualization. That peak is you. That peak is I have realized who I am, what I can accomplish, how I can accomplish it. And, And it's not a coincidence that there's no God in that picture. Because this is human nature. This is what we strive for in our life. We move from the basic needs to the very top to say, this is what I'm supposed to be. I exist for me to find myself. But that is not biblical thinking. Because you do not exist for you. I do not exist for me. We exist for one purpose and one purpose only. And that purpose is to glorify God. That is why we exist. We do not exist for our own glory. We exist to glorify God. We exist to love and to honor and to serve Him. But that is a struggle every day because everything teaches me that that self-actualization is really what I'm supposed to be going for. But instead, it's supposed to be realizing who I am. That is a picture of pride. That is a picture of Satan. That is a picture that needs a remedy. The problem is pride. The remedy is humility. The remedy is humility. Pride is forcing your way into a place. Humility, by definition, is to know your place. To know your place. Instead of, I've become my own God and people need to worship me, I've made my way to the top. It's knowing my place that there is a God and I'm not him. Go back to the wedding. Jesus says, okay, you got the guy who comes in. 
And he sits down in the front, and he takes the walk of shame the wrong way down the aisle. You have another guy who walks in. It's Uncle Charlie. I'm going to use you today, Charlie. It's Uncle Charlie. And Uncle Charlie walks in. He walks in. He looks. He says, okay, same picture. House is packed. There's seats up front, but there's also seats up in the balcony. I'm not going to infiltrate my way into the seats up front. I'm just going to go ahead and take my seat back there in the back. Well, Uncle Charlie's brother is the groom's dad. And as the groom's dad, he's going to say, hey, Charlie, come down here. Charlie's going to be humble. He's going to say, no, 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 I'm fine up here. Don't worry about it. And he sends the usher up there. And as he sends the usher up there, everybody's like, why is the usher going up there? And Uncle Charlie gets taken by the arm. And as Uncle Charlie gets taken down the arm, he gets to walk the right way down the aisle. Instead of starting out with pride and being humiliated, he starts out with humility and is exalted and moved to the place of honor. And Jesus is telling us this, and he's saying this in the mentality that we need to know our place. Humility is knowing our place. And here's what we have to grasp. Our place puts us that we are finite beings. We don't know everything. It took me a long time to figure that out. That I really don't know everything. When I was a 16-year-old, I thought I knew everything. I think I told my mom the answer to everything was, I know. Because I thought I did. I thought I did know. And that was the mentality we take, and we carry that into adulthood. But the reality is, we don't know everything. We are foolish. We are prideful. We are sinful beings. And Jesus wants us to know our place. Our place is not with God. However, Jesus, the Son, reached out and said, come. You realize your place. You realize you're in need of a Savior, and I am your Savior. Take that walk. Be exalted. Have that rule and reign of God in your life, that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God, because we want to be the ruler and the reigner in our own lives. But he says, take a look at this. Take a look at the way this works. The question is, where are you? Where am I? Well, let's take a little pride test and figure it out, shall we? I'm going to give you 10 statements, 10 questions. And if you feel like you fall into that, I want you to give yourself a point. Okay? You have to keep your own points on this one. And in the 10, just figure out the end, where you are between 1 and 10, how many points you racked up. Okay? And then we'll figure out how prideful or how humble you are. Shall we? All right. Here we go. So the first question is, is do you long for a lot of attention? Whether positive or negative, do you long for a lot of attention? Now, you can answer this in the Christian way. Say, I'm in church, and I'm going to say, no, I'm very humble. Or you can just be real and say, yes, that is me. Okay, so the second thing is, is do you become jealous or critical of people who succeed? Do you always have to win? Whether it's in board games or sports or even in a conversation, just have to win. Do you have a pattern of lying that kind of goes along with the winning thing where you say, hey, I have to one-up you? doesn't matter how true that story is. I'm still going to one-up you in that. Do you have a hard time acknowledging when you were wrong? Some of these are hitting a little closer to home than others. Do you have conflicts with other people? I've noticed this. Prideful people have conflicts. Prideful people with prideful people, prideful people with humble people. I mean, Jesus was a humble guy. Pharisees were, were not, and there was some conflict there. But you know what I rarely see is humble people having conflicts with humble people. Do you cut in line at store, airport, freeway, for sale? <laughs> do you cut in line? Just a quick question for you. Do you get upset when people do not honor your achievements? Do you tend more towards an attitude of entitlement or an attitude towards thankfulness? Number 10, do you honestly feel you are basically a good person and therefore superior to others? 
I know you wouldn't put on your social media about me thing, I'm better than you, but something similar to that is at least in your mind, that we are better than others. Now, we have our 10 things here, and what I want you to do is I want you to score those 10 things in your mind. Between 1 and 10, where did you score? Because if you score between 1 and 10, you're prideful. And if you scored 0, you're very prideful. Okay? Let, let's just be honest with you. Okay? We're, we're prideful people. You say, what did I score? Well, if you carry the 1, remember to do that. I scored the 20. Okay? So the, the reality is, is that we are prideful people. We struggle with that because that is our human nature. But what is the result of being prideful? He tells us in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says either you start with humility and God raises you up, or you start with pride and God knocks you down. There's only two ways to live. There's only two ways to live in all of this. And guess what? Do you want to be knocked down by God? Do you really want to pick a fight with God? We say no because that just makes sense because that sounds bad, but how many days do we pick a fight with God about who's in charge? It's a big issue in the Bible. I mean, you look throughout. Proverbs 16, 18, prize would go before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. Have you ever been there? So self-assured, so self-confident, so in love with what you think you're doing and how you are better than whatever, and there's no way this could fail, and then the whole bottom falls out and had that fall take place? Do you realize that it and the last, and I guess first, leaving port of call for the Titanic. There's a picture on the wall. And that picture on the wall has a quote below it. And the quote isn't attributed to anybody. They assume it was the captain. But the quote says this, even God could not sink this ship. That was a bad thing to say. And, and when we look at that kind of stuff, we think, well, that was dumb. Well, we can see the result. Well, when we're in the midst of it, how often do we feel so self-confident that that's not going to happen? The road that pride can cause us to sink. They can cause us to fall. Pride is the root of all sin. Even Jesus' own brother in James chapter 4, verse 6, says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Do you know what it means to be in opposition to God? It means you're on the other side. That means you're in a fight with him. That means what we are pushing and we are fighting. But God gives grace to the humble. You know what my suggestion is? Walk in humility. Walk in humility. Some think that humility means you don't do anything. Well, I better just not do this. I better just not succeed in life because success means pride, and pride gets in the way of all of that stuff. I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe he wants you to do things. I just believe he wants you to do it with grace and humility and mercy, and he wants you to do them in his name, not in your name, for his glory and not for your glory. See, we need to understand who's in charge. If you want to grow in humility, you cannot focus on humility. And the reason why I say that is this. Imagine this. You're really struggling with pride. And you just say, I have to get more humble. And the point in time reaches in your life where you're more humble and you're like, yes, I am humble. I'm the most humble person I know. What is that? You laugh because you know it's pride. It's what bubbles up inside of us. It's what oozes out of us. So what do we do? What do we focus on? If we can't focus on our humility, what do we focus on? It's real easy. Jesus. It's Jesus. How did Jesus live his life? Humbly. 
His whole existence on earth was a humble existence because he stepped down out of heaven to come here. He gave up everything up there for this. And this wasn't even as good as it is now. It was worse. But yet, he did it for you and he did it for me. He lived his life humbly. How did he do it? Did you know that in Luke chapter 4, it actually tells us that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is with him? He didn't even do it on his own power, on his own human abilities to say, I am so humble. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and carried through this life with him to, 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 to be brought to this place. As we look at the life of Jesus and we look at the power and we look at all the things, all the things that he did, he demonstrated humility throughout it because he knew his place. He knew his plan and the Father's, or his his. his Role in the Father's plan. And I look at that and I say, well, what causes us to know our place? Well, it's knowing that we are sinners. And we know what we deserve. We deserve death. But because of Jesus Christ, because of him coming, living, dying, and raising again for my sins and for your sins, I get something I don't deserve. And that is exalted to the place of sonship, to being adopted into the Father's kingdom. Paul talks about it in life. Paul talks about it with Jesus' life. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read through verses 1 through 11. I'm going to try and do it as quickly as possible here. This is what it says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, meaning this is Jesus. This is us being a part of his family. This is, a, this is us walking through this life. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, he loves you, he loves me, he loves us. How do we find comfort in that? Any participation in the Spirit, well, Jesus was participating in the Spirit. This is us. The Holy Spirit is in us just like he was in him, and he gives us the power if we so choose to not push it away. Our pride saying, we don't need that. We absolutely need that. But as we look at that, just think for a second how awesome that is. The Holy Spirit comes into our life not to make us better, but to make us more like Christ who is better. Any affection and sympathy is the next thing it says. What allows you to be affectionate? Or sympathetic towards people? Is it when you know that you're just like them? Is it when we know that, that we fit into that and they, we have the same struggles that they do? You know, sometimes we're less affectionate towards those who aren't like us. Funny thing is, is the, the continuation of this chapter goes into a parable of a great banquet. And that great banquet is encouraging the crippled and the blind and the poor and the weak to come to this banquet. Because they're not like us, which is going to throw the Pharisees. Well, well, I don't want to get, we're going to talk about it next week. But the thing is, is, is when you look at that, you say, how do we have that affection? How do we have that sympathy for people who aren't like us? Well, we realize they are like us. Because who we are in Christ or who we're not in Christ. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all have come up and think that we have enough. But in our pride, we are knocked down to say we are not enough. But because of Jesus Christ, we are. So if we're humble and we realize that everybody's the same, we can love everybody the same, we can have sympathy for everybody the same. Complete my joy, says Paul, by being of the same mind. He said, hey guys, we got to think different. You have worldly standards or you have biblical standards? You got to think biblically. Because worldly standards is going to tell us that we are it. And worldly standards, what John 14 actually says, the world and his wisdom does not know God. So that's what it's going to revolve around is you. But instead, we see Paul say, hey, we need to, in the Romans uh, verse, it says, we need to be transformed, not conformed. 
not conformed by the world and the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our what? Our mind. Our minds have to change. We have to think differently. We have to think and focus on Christ. When we do that, it will change everything else. That is what Paul is trying to say. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or competition or rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from that. What is selfish ambition? What is rivalry? What is competition? It says, I am going to beat you. Not only am I going to beat you, I am going to crush you. Because isn't that what this world's about, is crushing somebody else so you can succeed? I love sports. I can't say how difficult it is to beat somebody humbly. It's possible, but it is difficult. It's absolutely possible because I believe Jesus beat Satan humbly. But how do I appeal that and how do I apply that in my own life? And then how do I not do it with conceit to say that I hate you or I despise you or I'm going to destroy you? How do we do that? Once again, we have to have a different thinking. Once again, we have to have a different mind. Once again, we have to have a different focus, and that is Jesus. Next verse, three words, but in humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is probably one of the most difficult statements I see in the Bible. To count others better than yourselves. Because guess what? Whether you're single or you're married or you are married with kids, this is the most difficult thing for us to do, to not think about ourselves. If you're single, your whole world revolves around yourself. If you're married, my premarital counseling, I always sit down and say the same thing. you got selfish person number one, you got selfish person number two, and we're supposed to become one flesh. Yikes. That only leads to two selfish people fighting it out, who's going to get it. But if we think of other people better than ourselves, that changes everything. Then you have kids, and how many times you said, hey, don't do that. You represent me. Hey, don't do that. You represent my family. Hey, don't do that. Or whatever it might be, we start thinking about how you represent me versus, hey, how you're supposed to be representing Christ or whatever it might be. And it's really easy for us to be selfish. But we're supposed to consider others better than ourselves. And we say, but, but God, that's not the goal. The goal is for me to win. And if I'm going to win, that means that I have to go out and do something, and I have to make a difference, and I have to, to push myself, whether I hurt somebody along the way or not, this is what I have to do. When we say I want to be different, or I want to make a difference, and I want to be something, I don't disagree with that. Here's the thing, though. If we're looking at Jesus, did he make a difference, and was he something? Absolutely. There are more books written about Jesus than any other character in history. There are more paintings about Jesus than any other person in history. There are more followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years than any other person in history. Our calendar, A.D., Anno Domini, is the year of our Lord. I think he made a difference. But he did it humbly. And it goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think differently. We think differently not because we want to think differently. We think differently because we are in Christ. He causes us to think differently. And that's when we have that kingdom of God, that kingdom of heaven, that rule of him in our hearts where we are no longer the ones ruling. It's him that is ruling. Verse 6, who, though he, being Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, 
Jesus made himself into a human being and put himself here. Went from having the angels singing holy, holy, holy to him to having men and women who he created saying crucify him. That's a humble step. That is a knockdown humility, ultimate humility that he is demonstrating to us. I mean, think about the things that we strive for. Did Jesus strive for those? We want more money. He was homeless and broke. We want a nice house. Once again, homeless. We want to raise our kids up right. He was raised up as a peasant's son, being a carpenter's helper. Carpenters weren't jobs that everybody strived for. It was just a basic, ordinary thing. He was humble, but yet he did it for a purpose. And the thing is, we've been talking about this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. These, these people sat, and, and they, they thought he was going to be this earthly ruler. And as an earthly ruler, they thought, well, he's going to come, and he's going to take over. I mean, he was humble, though. Kings aren't humble. That's not the picture that we get. Who is this guy? What is this all about? He's supposed to say, I am going to succeed to be served, and then I'm going to have to pay people to serve me, because that's how amazing I am. That is a king. And yet... This king wasn't that way. It says, next, being found in human form, he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God was humble enough to let his creation murder him. For their sake. For their own ability to connect with God. To take our place. He humbled himself. What happens next? After he taught Luke chapter 14, verse 11, he says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. What happens? Verse 11, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, I want you to see that, at the name of Jesus, what happens next? Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, not at the name of Matt, not at the name of you. Not at the name of Paragon Church, not at the name of the Southern Baptist Convention or any other convention, not even at the name of, of the United States, but at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. In heaven, who's that? It's the believers. On earth, who's that? It's the church. And under the earth, who's that? It's the non-believers. Everyone at some point will get down on their knees. And you know what they're going to do when they get down on their knees? They are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and give glory to the God, our Father. That's an amazing thing. That's a humbling thing. If we come humbly, we will be exalted. But if we come exalted and prideful in ourselves, thinking that we can do it, we will be humiliated. And that is a powerful statement and a hard one to take. Jesus came in humility, but is in glory. He is the glory. He is the name above every name. He is the one that every knee will bow. And I got to thinking about this at the end of, of the, the message last night and even throughout the week. I thought, when was the last time we got down on our knees before God? I don't, I don't know what your prayer time looks like. I don't know what mine looks like. It's when I'm on the treadmill at the gym. It's when I'm uh, laying in bed before I go to sleep at night. But I can't tell you the last time I literally got down on my knees and humbly bowed before the Father. I almost prayed egotistically. That's what I thought. 
When was the last time that I bowed my head, I bowed my heart, and I really wasn't distracted by everything else in me? And I got to thinking about that. You say, oh, I don't want to get on my knees. I don't know what everybody else is going to think if I did that here at church. Well, guess what? If you're worried about what everybody else is thinking, you've got an issue with pride. We have to get down on our knees before our Heavenly Father. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to encourage you to do so. I know there's not a whole lot of room in the chairs. And maybe you can't physically get down on your knees. But there's room up here. There's room at these fronts, front chairs, and you can face the other way if you need to be able to do that. Or at least put yourself in a place of humility as we sing this song. The song we're going to close with is, Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Altogether lovely, altogether humbly. When we stop and think about that, how often do we bow down to say he is our God versus we raise ourselves up to say I am my own God? It's a question that you have to answer on your own. I'm going to join you down here in the front. If you want to pray with me, that'd be great. But I think this is more between you and God. So I'm going to invite Jerome up here. I'm going to pray that God just speaks to us through this message, that it's not something we just hear today and tomorrow it's gone, that we continue to live a life that is focused on Jesus. See, the opposite of, or the, the remedy for pride really isn't humility. The remedy for pride is Jesus, and the byproduct is humility. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you do, even if it is humiliating. Even when I lift myself up, that you have to come in and knock me down. God, help me to focus on your son through the power of your Holy Spirit to come humbly. Not out of obligation, but out of knowing my place. That I am not God. It's a struggle I have every day. It's a struggle I have every hour. God, I need your strength. And I pray even right now, as we come humbly before you, whether we stand with our arms in the air or we sit with our heads bowed or we get down on our knees, God, may we come to you in an attitude, not just through action, but our heart's attitude to say, I am in the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. I know my place. Help me to live it. pray in your name. Amen.